Welcome to Dwight in Shining Armor, The Sunken Kingdom, the behind-the-scenes podcast about everything Dwight. I'm Josh Breslow, and I play Yakopo. Today, we're talking about Season 1, Episode 8, The Dragon, written by Leanne H. Adams and Brian J. Adams, directed by Jeff Hunt, guest-starring Robin Lively and Andrew Pifko. As always, we have a blanket spoiler alert. So if you haven't watched Episode 8 yet, stop whatever you're doing. You can return that stolen T-ball participation medal later and watch The Dragon, either on BYU TV or at BYUtv.com slash Dwight. First, a quick recap. Baldrick is ready to fix his staff once and for all, but to do so, he needs the fire of a dragon. So he and Greta journey to the dragon pit over which Claudwig suspended her back in the pilot. But before he gets the dragon fire, the dragon reveals itself to be Greta's godmother, Lady Ermengarde, played by Robin Lively, who, to quote Sir Dwight, wants to take Greta to some desert island in the middle of nowhere and stick her in a tower. Now, Dwight needs to prove his skills as a champion so Lady Ermie feels that Greta is safe with Baldrick, Sir Dwight, and of course, Greta's own great warrior skills. Now that everyone's been brought up to date, let's get to our guests. Back with us for more is one of the creators and showrunners of Dwight in Shining Armor, Brian J. Adams. Hello, Josh. Hello, Brian. Excited to talk about the dragon. Yes, bring it on. We are humbled to have with us the great Joel McCrary, a.k.a. Baldrick. What? I didn't even know I was going to be here. This is awesome. <laughs> <laughs> and Caitlin Carmichael, once again over the phone, Princess Greta herself is with us. Hi, everybody. Hello. Hello, Caitlin. Hey, Kit Kat. We're going to jump right into the episode. Um, First off, let's talk about this great set. Who designed it, and did it have to be recreated from the pilot shoot in Atlanta, or was it already in Utah? That is a great question and a really good story. There should, there should be a whole episode about that set. The castle set was built originally uh, in Augusta, Georgia, where we shot the pilot. Uh, we did move several of the flats from Augusta to Salt Lake City, where we shot this episode. And we, we had the idea of repurposing them. But honestly, uh, Cody Bush, uh, our production designer, designed both the set in Georgia and the set in Salt Lake City. And he had improved so much in Salt Lake City that the stuff in Georgia didn't look good enough. So we basically rebuilt almost everything. And, sp and specifically, we had this idea of shooting in the tunnels underneath you know, in the fire pit. We had zero money to build any tunnels. And actually, as we were, even as we were in pre-production, the director, Jeff Hunt, for this episode and, and the DP you know, banked, they kept saying, where are the tunnels, guys? Where are the tunnels? Like we, I, I see tunnels in the scripts. I don't see tunnels on the stage. And Cody, uh, Cody Bush, our production designer, had really a genius idea. Of we had honestly, I think it was like ten feet of tunnel uh, total, uh, and he just kept like rearranging these very quickly in cool ways to make it look like there's an endless labyrinth under there. So what Cody did on a really challenged budget uh, is just unbelievable I, I wish i wish we had like a whole documentary on it because it's like it, it's ridiculous it's impossible what he did to make it look so good on a really ridiculously small budget and ske tight schedule yeah i'm actually genuinely a bit gobsmacked i couldn't tell at all watching it looked like a full tunnel set as an actor you show up and you see these 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 are the tunnels <laughs> and then you know the lighting and atmosphere and all that kind of stuff you oh yeah these are the tunnels when you see them off camera it looks ridiculous but all that matters is what looks on camera and i swear he better like win an emmy or something because he did such an incredible right job. cody never failed to blow us away absolutely let's talk about the smoke and atmosphere and fire um because obviously there are a couple shots of real fire but for the most part it's practical magic um, what went into that? How did that work? 
So yeah, the fire was another you know, lot of discussions ab about fire, and we wanted to do more fire because visual effects fire looks really bad almost always um, unless you spend you know hundreds of thousands of dollars on it so there are several why, why don't we spend hundreds of thousands of dollars on it <laughs> good question <laughs> let me get back to you on that so one of the one of the cool tricks i may still get arrested for admitting this in public but we, we weren't supposed to have any fire on the set uh, the fire marshal said no but the director uh, jeff hunt had a really cool idea for when greta is reaching you know to try and get the get the dragon fire with the torch um that was supposed to be visual effects fire because we weren't supposed to have any but uh jeff hunt he loves candles by the way you can always tell if jeff hunt has directed something because there's a candle burning somewhere <laughs> and, but he put a bunch of candles in like a, a little vase thing um and that so that was practical fire I, I think almost all the other fire obviously the big dragon fire uh all the rest of it was visual effects fire did caitlin did you have something to add on that? no i just did not know that i was playing with illegal fire yeah but other you, than that we, 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 were not, <laughs> we were not allowed to have have that fire but it, it was supposed to be visual effects but it was just uh, it was going to look too bad i mean hey if you're in a bread factory and no longer shooting in an abandoned drill bit factory with oil slicks i say fire's that's fine right. I, that's that's yeah. what we thought i think that's <laughs> luckily right. we got away with it no one <laughs> you can't it. make bread without fire <laughs> that is true <laughs> well said <laughs> so getting into the pit uh caitlin this is for you and joel what was that setup like was it just apple boxes on the other side was could you go deep down were there people waiting for you to help you down into the pit i'm I'm trying to remember it. Now that I think about it, it was much more of a complicated process than probably it should have been. But there was a lot of climbing under things, feeling like you were a contestant on Wipeout, hoping not to be wiped out. <laughs> uh, but we had a great stunt team that were helping us get in there. I think the most complicated thing was just seeing through the fog. Um Joel, I remember not being able to see anything while we were filming, right? Uh, yeah. Well, this beginning part, when we're climbing in, it was pretty easy because it was just a matter of, you know, Caitlin would jump in, cut, then – because, there, I mean, there wasn't anything other than the stones around the pit, and we would be start to step in and kind of lowering ourselves uh, – magically towards the floor. <laughs> so there was no pit there. I mean, that was just editing. Green, just green screen. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, editing and directorial magic uh, that they cut together. So I, that part wasn't too difficult. Later, when we're crawling out, we had another thing that we actually did crawl up. Got it. And, and Caitlin was starting to talk about being actually inside the tunnels with all the smoke. I noticed that those ceilings were pretty low. What was that like for you to shoot in there? And was that a long day for you? Um, for me, the word that comes to mind is excruciating. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. When you're a big guy being hunched over that far and... Also, the other thing, whatever the material was that the ceiling part was taken up, it would uh, it was like Velcro to my wig. Oh, uh, yeah. And there were also oh, no. like sticks and stems that would want to get in. And so I was like constantly moving, and then I'd feel like a little uh, tug, and I'd have to stop because I didn't want to pull the wig off because that would set us way behind yeah. having to redo the beard or the wig or anything like that. So I, I just remember it being, if I felt anything, it was like, stop. Don't pull. Make sure you're loose and then move forward. So I, I remember that. And I remember just being hunched over and kind of like, eh, can we shoot this now? Or <laughs> or or it's kind of like, OK, we're ready to shoot. Um, yeah. When I hear the uh, the board uh, clap together, 
then I'll get into position, but <laughs> don't make me get into position until we're actually ready to do it. Right. So, uh, so that that became an understanding, <laughs> and a very say, reasonable I, one. I will be there when we say action, <laughs> but uh, yeah, but not a moment before. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, so I have a, a nerdy writerly question. Yeah. Um, this is remarkably the first episode I've thought to ask this question, which I think speaks to um, yours and Leanne's skills um, as writers. Every episode, you have to do two things. You have to continue as if your audience has seen every episode, and you also have to assume that there are a bunch of people who are seeing this show for the first time. And it struck me in the conversation between Baldrick and Dwight about he is not ready to go face a dragon, that you were telling the new audience information. How do you tackle that kind of exposition without making audiences that have seen every other episode feel like you're telling them things they've already known? You're right. That's that's a question we struggle with, and try and find a balance with every episode and I'm I'm not sure we've done it perfectly but we, you don't you don't want to punish the people who have who have you know who keep coming to the episodes but you don't also want to neglect the people that this is their first time you don't want to put them off so one of the things that that we've done is in the main title sequence uh, we have a short recap of how we got here mm-hmm. um, and so uh, so we see Dwight falling through the hole, landing on Greta, kissing you know, kissing Greta awake, and we see just a little bit of that. Accidentally, yeah, a- accidentally, that wasn't a kiss. <laughs> so, uh, so we see a li- we see a little bit of that, and we, Leanne and I, are always on on the side of, you know, giving our audience the credit for being you know sharp people and you know picking up on things quickly, and so we don't want to pander to them too much, but we do from time to time, as long as it doesn't slow us down too much, like to just recap a little bit, and I think for new audience members, it'll get them up to speed, and for old audience members, we want it to just sort of feel a little bit of nostalgia. Um, and now that we're talking about all this, it, it reminds me of what Leanne always says about exposition, that she, you you guys only want to give as much as as is necessary, and in this episode, the thing that's necessary is to restate that Dwight is not a skilled warrior and right. that's the thing you get done at the top and it's quick and it's fun and we yeah. get to move on and we always just want to give the audience the benefit of the doubt for being sharp people because our audience is the smartest audience out there <laughs> yes you are and best looking <laughs> not keep, that we pander keep, at keep all keep watching <laughs> and the best at subscribing and rating at five stars <laughs> oh I don't think they could actually do that could they I don't know let's find out I guess the challenge is on <laughs> Caitlin Caitlin in every other episode so far Greta handles the foes coming at her, or she reluctantly helps, as in the case of Winnie. But in this episode, Greta is on a quest to get the dragon fire. Does it feel to you like Greta is growing up and starting to take control and be more active as opposed to reactive? Absolutely. And the dragon is a very uh, important episode, really, for all the relationships of all of our characters, because it's the first time that Greta also is seeing this world for something a little bit more than just temporary. And that was the main thing that I talked to Brian and Leanne about over the course of filming is that she has in the back of her mind that she doesn't want to have these long-term connections in the modern world. But when we see the fear of being taken away, it makes Greta want to um, prove Dwight as her champion. And that kind of grows from the initial quest of just getting the dragon fire at the episode, which we have our tag at the end finding out that we forgot the dragon fire all along but um <laughs> the storyline of the episode kind of spurs from that helping us grow this bigger quest and see what um greta really hopes for i totally agree i think that all comes across and and you do a great job with that well thank you oh you are most welcome <laughs> let's listen to a clip greta 
Who goes there? Is it you? Friend or foe? Just like your mom. Auntie Ermie? Lady Ermengarde. What are you doing down here? We must hurry, your ladyship. A dragon prowls these depths. Well, about that. <laughs> so, well, you probably didn't know this about me, but there's no reason you should. In fact, it's a deeply guarded secret only my dearly departed husband knew. Your husband died? No, no, just departed. What I mean to say is, uh, well, you see that dragon? I think about that dragon. As it happens, that dragon is, um... You. You are a shifter. Hmm. Cool. So... The cold open ends and we're introduced to Lady Ermengarde, a.k.a. Auntie Ermie, a.k.a. Greta's godmother. And I have a couple questions about this. Um, although she's the second shifter we've ever met, she's the first one we've seen in action. Was it always a plan to bring multiple shifters into the storyline? Actually, no. As we continue to develop the story uh, after Macklin the Fox, we're like, we got to do that some more. Uh, and so we this a lot of times we plan out the story uh, but we plan out the major points so we have to kind of fill in the details as we go along so that that was one of them that we said let's let's have some more shifters and then wouldn't it be cool if uh, you know if this shifter was you know related to that shifter and you know in, in more than than one way and so uh, so that was something that we developed as as we went along I love bringing in multiple it makes it really feel like part of the world like this is a big part of the magic you're going to be dealing with right. um so, Caitlin, this is the second family member of Greta's we've met, but the first one she knew because she didn't know the lost king because he was lost. Um, <laughs> I think you're forgetting about Clodwig. Oh, oh Clodwig. So this is the third one. You're right. This is the third one. How That's foolish right. of me. I'm so glad Evan <laughs> You should be embarrassed here. and you're fired. If Evan was here, he would have leapt across the table at me. Uh, <laughs> well, you know, Evan, he's so forgettable. <laughs> <laughs> so, Caitlin, this is the third family member of Greta's we've met, but this is the first one that is an adult in her life and cared for and she had a really solid relationship with. What's this moment like for Greta when uh, Auntie Ermie comes around? I think Greta has a pretty interesting relationship with her Auntie Ermie, and of course she's excited to see her and is surprised to find out that her aunt is this dragon shifter, but of course um, it's the kind of parental influence that you always want to be on your best behavior in front of and really want to make a good impression in front of at all times. So Greta's uh, instinct of wanting to make sure everything goes perfectly in her introduction into the modern world really kicks in and kind of we see this hyperactive, anxious side of Greta that doesn't often come out. So that was a lot of fun to get to show on screen and kind of play around and distracting Auntie Ermie from the not-so-champion ways of life. Yeah, that that comes across that you change on the spot when you see who she is, and everything starts to shift a little. And I was actually curious about how that affects Baldrick, Joel, because... You know, he's the person in charge of Greta's safety for the most part and the adult in the situation. And all of a sudden there's another adult. And I started to wonder for the first time, what's his place in this cast system? Because he's clearly loyal to Greta, but he also shows deference to Lady Ermengarde. He knows that what she says goes and mm. she is the legal guardian at this point. He has been. But when she shows up, at first it's like, oh, it's great to see an old friend, a face, you know, that I know that's not trying to kill us. Uh, and so that's good. And then when she starts laying out her plans, he's suddenly like, 
that's right. It's not my place to make these decisions anymore. It's hers. And, and he will absolutely, um, you know, acquiesce to that. Uh, so I, I think it is a definitely mind shift for him to be like, I'm not really in charge. I'm not the adult that's in charge anymore. She is. And he doesn't like her ideas, but I have to go along with it. She's in charge. Right. I mean, it's a big moment. It shows mm-hmm. us that this system that we're used to, this relationship structure can really change in a moment. Only villains have come out of the woods so far for the most part, and now someone good, and that can really shake things up. So, Caitlin, uh, I think Greta tries out the word cool for the first time (laughs) in this episode when she is talking about her aunt being a dragon shifter. Um, It's really fun to see is do you think more 21st century vernacular is going to make it into Greta's vocabulary? Absolutely. And I think that in each episode, there there's a little something that Greta tries for the first time, whether it's a major story point or just a little innuendo in dialogue. And there's something that she says that or does that really comes from her time as well. But I love getting to see Greta play around and put the extra emphasis and enunciation on saying those words it makes it a lot of fun and a little tag to go along with those scenes and to help her figure out how to describe what she's feeling. Yeah, it's great. She's getting, yeah, new ways to describe what she's feeling. I love thinking about it like that. Um, so we learned that unbeknownst to Baldrick and Greta, Lady Ermy helped save them during the siege by taking out the orcs who were trying to sabotage the walls of the castle from below. Not only for the first time do we get a tangible morsel of what the siege was like, but we also see how Lady Ermy thinks that Greta's protections are severely weak. How does Baldrick feel about this as her protector? Uh, he's a little insulted. Also, it's out of his control. It's like, well, no, no, you don't understand. We've all been asleep for a thousand years. All this dust and dirt and roots and all—that's that, not my fault. I didn't forget to, you know, clean the the chambers. Uh, <laughs> I, I, I've been asleep, you know. So, so I, I think it's a little bit of a. I, I won't explain, but it's he doesn't really get a chance to. So I remember, you know, shooting that scene and feeling like you know, when she starts insulting it, that it couldn't protect it from, I think it was bunnies or yes, something like that. An invasion of bunnies. Which, right. by the way, is not out of the realm of possibilities yeah, on this show. Anything can spark inspiration that. for Brian and Leah. We can talk about anything. It'll give them some kind of idea. Let's listen to another clip. Go get your things! My, my things? I know of an island. Remote. Forgotten. Uninhabited. With a sturdy tower where you can while away your days as I patrol the beaches, you will be absolutely safe. But I am safe enough here. Safe enough? You are a princess, which means your life will always be under constant threat. And you have no one to protect you. Yes, I have. I have Baldrick. Magic tricks will not be enough. No, no. You need a warrior. I have Sir Dwight, my champion. This squirmy little whelp. And here we go. (laughs) So after the orc story, we get to the real crux of the episode. And and Caitlin, you've hinted at this already, where Auntie Ermie wants to protect Greta by locking her away on a desert island, Rapunzel style. And we get to see Greta... I think, freak out in earnest for the first time. Nothing has unnerved her this deeply. Maybe Peanut, but that doesn't really compare. Um, Is Greta's greatest fear having her agency stripped from her? There's a lot of different variables that come through Greta's little panic attack that we see in the scene in the armory. There's um, part of it seeing that her 
similar freedom is being taken away and her independence is being taken away that she's grown to own in herself in this modern world, but also the connections that she's made in the 21st century and having to leave is something that scares her, which is a surprising thing that I think it's just white at least, you know, seeing how much she really cares because it's not so often that her guard comes down in this way. So it's kind of a visual representation of having Dwight wear the armor when Greta's guard comes down. Whoa, man, that's deep. Well nice. said. Whoa. Absolutely. All right, you just blew all our minds <laughs> yeah. here. You can't see us. We're like, well, all right. <laughs> I think I think I'm going to go now because <laughs> clearly there's no need for me to be here. Yeah. <laughs> the smartest person in this room is not, not in this, in this room. room. Yeah. Um, okay. Well, thank you for that answer, Caitlin. That's that's. Really Really interesting. That was, that was beautiful. Yeah. Um, jumping back for a second, when Greta and Baldrick are listing the foes Dwight has defeated, Dwight does start to sound impressive in that moment. And you go, oh, wow, he really has done some brave things. The The interesting thing is that they don't affect how he carries himself in the world. He's still just Dwight. Uh, per usual, Brian, with your writing, I don't feel the exposition, but in this moment, uh, in a way, you're saying, hey, <laughs> the concept of our show totally works. This kind-hearted kid really can take on any sort of enemy and stay good. Uh, thank you. I, I, absolutely. And, and that was kind of an interesting moment also uh, because when we were listing those off, we actually, because we didn't shoot in order, uh, some of them we hadn't actually shot yet. Uh, oh. So, for example, we shot uh, Peanut, which is airs as the third episode. That was the 20th episode that we shot. And so we, we were actually having to think forward when we were shooting this, like, all right, what else is coming up? And we got had to make sure that we didn't leave anything out. And we were actually super nervous that we might. Or even worse, list something here that later would end up getting cut. And so that was another thing. Uh, there's There's a lot of story calculus that has to go on like when someone says how about we change this we have to l remember little moments like this we're like no 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 remember in the episode that we already shot but that airs later we said that we de defeated the Varger and so it it's it's a lot to keep track of yeah I mean the enemy that sounded the most difficult to defeat was definitely the troubadour yeah I, I, like <laughs> um, I do have two real questions about this did you invent frolic of fairies we did not. And in fact, we were given that term. We were corrected by our, our assistant, uh, Andrew A.P. Creighton, who was just a dictionary of useful information. Uh, we had, I forget what we had, the other line. Uh, I, I think we had a, like a school of fairies. It wasn't that. Mm -hmm. uh, but we had something else, a horde of fairies, I think it was. And, and Andrew said, no, no, no. A, a group of fairies is called a frolic of fairies. I was like, why do you know that? But thank you. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, he, he corrected why, that. Why is it even a thing? <laughs> I love those. Um, yeah. And another side question, was listing riding a bike as one of his achievements a little nod to Sloan learning how to ride a bike <laughs> for the show? Yes and no. Poor Sloan has taken so much heat for that. Uh, it, it actually... Uh, was a little bit of a nod, but it was also just, it was very Dwightish that we would list that and also that they would still be impressed by that uh, and, and that Lady Ermengarde wouldn't know <laughs> enough to say like, every kid in America rides a bike. Uh, so it was just a fun moment to see the, the two worlds not understanding each other. So uh, we have the dragon and we also have a pook in this episode. Yeah. From what mythology comes the pook? So Celtic mythology is just an incredible you know, treasure trove uh, of cool creatures. And the pook has its roots in, in Celtic mythology. And in fact, we've seen it before. If, if you remember the old uh, Jimmy Stewart movie, Harvey, uh, yeah. the big rabbit is yeah. called, Harvey, uh, is called a puka. Uh, and so it has its, its roots in the same, same place. And, and a, like we've done in a lot of situations, we've taken just the seed of the idea that's based in 
Western mythology and sort of morphed it to fit our needs. But but that a puka or a pook uh, is you know a an animal that you know is much larger than expected and you know can do you know lots of different things. And again, over hundreds and hundreds of years, it's morphed in different ways, and we've continued to morph it. But our pook comes from the same roots as as Harvey the puka. And are they traditionally? Um uh, violent or evil or to they, be feared? They they certainly have been uh, in the past uh, and and mischievous and kind of devious uh, oh, okay. more. So there's a there's a wide range. But obviously we went we went with the uh, the scary one. Yeah, because that's more entertaining. Exactly for our uh, But but like <laughs> but like in in Harvey, you know, he he was not going to snap his head off. Right. Uh, so. Right. Caitlin and Joel. Tell me everything about what it was like watching the Monty Python-esque sequence of Dwight fake-fighting Mackland and his merry band of yeomen. Uh, Well, for me, uh, that is a combination of a couple of my favorite things. Uh, Sloan in the armor, first of all, it really was – it took me back to my childhood watching the Pink Panther with Peter Sellers – in the suit of armor, trying to walk around. And it was <laughs> as if Peter Sellers had been reincarnated and was on the soundstage walking around. And just every little movement made me giggle to myself <laughs> like a little child. And then the other side of that is the fake fighting where you just swing nowhere near and the person flings themselves trying to convince somebody that's my. Those are two of my favorite comedic things. And then to have them thrown together for me, it was just pure joy to be on set watching that. Absolutely. Um, well, first, our stunt team, they never disappoint in any episode, but in this one in particular, choreographing this fake stunt scene, uh, the fight scene, it was just absolutely incredible to watch. And every beat of comedy had to be so precise. So shout out to um, our entire team and Sloan. They did such a great job. And then I think... Uh, there wasn't too much scripted dialogue for Joel and myself and our reactions trying to prove the fight scene and the valor of it to Lady Ermengarde. Uh, so we just kind of got to do um, a shot and they just rolled the camera and let us improv a bit of our reactions. So we got to play around with that and have a lot of fun getting more and more dramatic as the seconds progressed. So um, I think it turned out great. We were all so excited about that scene. And we became a little more uh, interested in entertaining ourselves <laughs> during some of that. We really were. I'm so glad you brought that up because I was going to ask what it was like for you two playing Baldrick and Greta playing bad actors. It, 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 it is fun to do. I mean, bad acting uh, when it's on purpose is it's the a, best. A great, you know. And it's fun to play. I think Caitlin, your first reaction is my favorite. The classic, <gasps> and when they when they come in, it's so funny. Um, <laughs> I tried to be as much of a damsel in distress, very anti Greta as possible, and I'm happy with how it turned out. Joel and um, and Robin and myself, we just had a blast, and Joel and I kind of played off Robin and her confused reactions, and I think it. It was just very entertaining for us as actors getting to play around with something like that. Yeah, and poor Robin having to have real reactions while we're just over there overacting our little butts off. It's so funny. Yeah. Um, (laughs) So there's a really important thing that happens right here, and I don't want to miss it. Dwight, for the first time, is literally in shining armor. You did it, Brian. Yay! You succeeded. (laughs) We can all go home now. Um, Mission accomplished. (laughs) How difficult was it actually for Sloan to move in this armor? 
I, I remember it being a very bad day. In fact, <laughs> when, <laughs> when first of all, I, we were so stoked that we got to have Dwight in Shining Armor. This was another one of those things that we had not you know, like planned from day one. We always, you know, in the back of our mind would be super cool if we did it. But uh, but when we found our opportunity, we we're like, wow, this is going to be great. And so we were super <laughs> excited. But when we got him, I've never been in Shining Armor myself. Uh, but apparently, according to Sloan, it's no fun at all. And, and I remember there was there was one uh, there was like one section of the armor that was really pinching his skin or stabbing mm, him at, mm. at some point and it was it, I think it became you know by the end of the day like torture management for him uh, to just just and in fact uh, on his contact card when he calls me uh, it's a picture of him that pops up in that armor and he does not look happy <laughs> was, he's, he's, just, he's just trying to manage the pain by the end of the day oh man we should post that picture we will mm-hmm. um. well I, I can I can bust it Sloan still tells that story. We were at Salt Lake City Fan X, and uh, we were crossing the street from our hotel, and somehow Sloan was still talking about the sensation of being in that armor and how it was pinching him. Yeah, uh, it's just always on his mind. He goes to sleep thinking about it every night. Yeah, Um, it was was not a comfortable or easy thing. And remember, he had to do fight choreography in that. Now, fortunately, it didn't have to be good fight choreography, and actually the more awkward the better, which he pulled off brilliantly. Yeah, he used it. Yeah. I would say. Yeah. Um, so we have this old school giant reptile effect as the pook looms up behind Macklin. Um, how did that visual effect work? A lot of times we're stepping out into the dark and we're kind of making it up as we go. So Ben Burrell and his visual effects team were amazing in this as well. Uh, and one other member, Doug Stewart, uh, whom we've worked with a lot on visual effects over many years. Uh, ben and Doug and other members of the team were both there. And what what they did, they actually drew out on a big piece of cardboard what would be the footprint, basically, of the pook. Uh, and we placed that on the set to make sure that no one crossed it. Uh, so obviously you can't see it anymore, but there was like a giant footprint. And then it, getting the eye line was really difficult also because we had to sort of guess where the head of the pook would be. And then there's a lot of math involved because you want the footprint to be impressive, but then you want it to be big. But if you keep the uh, the frog in scale in order for it to be this big you know as big as we wanted it his head would have been like 12 feet high mm. and so we were actually on the day we had this you know cardboard cutout, and i was like no make it bigger and he's like you realize like you're gonna have to make a bigger castle i'm like all right and so we were like really having to scale it down and so that's the stuff that these guys think about months in advance uh, of saying okay here's what we do and and then then they also go uh they have this i don't know what this special little uh mirror ball that they take in there and they uh they take a picture, you know, a super high resolution picture of this ball that shows where all the lights are placed. And then when they make uh, the visual asset, uh, they place virtually lights in the same place where we physically had the lights. Uh, so, And I don't pretend to know anything about it. I've just watched them work. Uh, but the the technical you know, expertise required to do this stuff is, uh, you know, it's, it's intense. That is See, fascinating. When, when they pulled out the mirror ball, I thought it was just time for disco party. So <laughs> I would be in the corner dancing by myself. Nobody else joined me. <laughs> so Dwight has different superpowers that help him throughout the show diplomacy, empathy, being a bottle flip champion, which was totally unfair. <laughs> but this time, it seems that his superpower is ignorance um, in, in the face of the pook. And so many times, isn't it? I, I mean, honestly, I think uh, in my life and in a lot of you know people I've seen, it's like, 
if you knew what you should know, you would never go out and do that. Uh, and and so and and I think that is his superpower in this case. That is, it, it's maybe naivete more than ignorance. And, and and I think it also has its root in one of his other superpowers, which he sees the good in people and he trusts people and he sees a you know a six foot frog. He's like. What could possibly go wrong? Yeah. He's, you know, he's, he's a really nice frog, and so I think it's rooted in Dwight's other superpower of just you're like really genuinely seeing the best in people, and I think usually that's rewarded in life, and especially in our show uh, when Dwight sees the good in something, you know, like our pook, the pook doesn't snap his head off like it normally would because you know he's seeing the best in our in our pook. Right, it's that empathy coming back around again. It is. Every time. Um, so assuming Lady Ermy isn't pulling an overboard on Macklin, which for you kids listening, you have no idea what I'm talking about. No, they did a remake. They did you a might remake, know. yeah. Um, no, nobody saw the remake. <laughs> That's true. It's a really sweet scene with a husband and wife reuniting. And we learn something mythological about this world that shifters all have their other form tattooed on their left, no, right wrists. Um, Either one actually works. Okay. Are they born with these tattoos or is this how they mark themselves they're born with the tattoos and the tattoos are part of the shifting process and this is uh, not really a pre-existing mythology it was just something that that worked for us uh, again it, it worked really well uh with with macklin the fox because of that great you know that great moment the left no right uh and and then we wanted to continue the you know the shifter mythology so we stuck with it here with lady ermengarde yeah well. it's a great thread that keeps it all together okay Getting close to wrapping up, the final beat of the episode is Baltric realizing they forgot the dragon fire. <laughs> is he ever going to get this staff fixed? Uh, I think that's a question for the writers. I don't know. I hope so at some point. I, I think we're probably going to be uh, – our our foes seem to be growing and becoming uh, more and more, you know, the scripts that I've seen, uh, bigger foes. Uh, so mm -hmm. I think at some point we're going to need a little bit of that. Uh, so – I imagine it probably will at some point, but the threat the threat is certainly mounting. We may need some some uh, more more firepower to fight them off, or we may not. More power. I, I hope so it. because that's one of my favorite things to do is the random chant that goes along with it. Mama say mama say mama That's the one. Yes. All right. Well, that wraps it up for season one, episode eight of Dwight and Shining Armor: The Sunken Kingdom, the behind the scenes podcast about everything Dwight. Thank you, Brian and Joel. Thank you, Caitlin. Thank you, you Josh. Are very welcome, Joshua. Thank you, Josh. <laughs> it's a pleasure. Um, you can follow Joel on Instagram at McCrary Joel. You can follow Brian at Brian underscore J underscore Adams. You can follow Caitlin at Really Caitlin XOX. And you can follow me at The Josh Breslow. And if you have any questions that are as yet unanswered about the dragon, please tweet your questions or send video questions to at Dwight and Armor, and we'll tackle them a little bit down the line. Tune in again next week for Season 1, Episode 9, Todd. I'm Josh Breslow. Thanks for listening. Go on an adventure today. It might change your life. <laughs>